You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. We want you to feel confident about investing so that you can make your money work just as hard as you do. Learn the ropes without the jargon at fidelity.com slash demand more. Her money comes to you through PRX. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Her Money. It's Jean Chatsky. And I want you all to know that I listen to you. And one of the things that I often hear you say is that some of your favorite episodes are the ones where we get down and dirty about all things having to do with your careers, from climbing the ladder and asking for a raise to taking a break and negotiating for a better benefits package. And I got to admit, I get a lot of great insight from those guests as well, which is one of the reasons that I have been so excited for this podcast. It's one we've been planning for a while. I did an event a few months back at HP with Tracy Keough, who is the chief human resources officer for that company. And one of the very first things that she said when we sat down and and we were with a group of women at the company to talk about women and investing. It was part of an event that Fidelity actually put together. One of the things that Tracy said was that she trains the women on her staff to negotiate against her. She learned all about negotiating when she was getting her MBA. It's a skill that she has mastered. It's a skill that she believes more women need to know much more about. And she makes it her business, her passion to do that. And I said, podcast, please, Tracy Keough, welcome to Her Money. Thank you so much, Jean. I'm so happy to be here. So you've got quite a career. I mean, you were at Aon Hewitt, you were at Bloomberg, you've been at HP now for a few years. Tell me a little bit more about your role and how you got where you are today. Yeah, so I have a a kind of an untraditional background. Uh, I actually started off as a hospital administrator, uh, ended up going to business school at Harvard, came out and did management consulting. And um, over the years, I ran sales and marketing for one company, operations, and then sort of fell into HR and realized I really liked HR a lot and uh, have been doing that for the majority of my career. I think uh, it always comes down to the people at every company. And so it's really important to uh, have someone who can focus on making sure you have the best team on the field for whatever company you're working at. And I love being in human resources. That's fabulous. And clearly, you love negotiating. I mean, you've done it for yourself (laughs) in every job that you've had, getting paid more than the original ask. But it's something that a lot of women just don't do. There's an often cited study from Carnegie Mellon University that showed negotiating up front can actually bring us salaries that are between 7 and 8% higher than what we're originally offered. And if you do that every time, it's like compound interest. It's just a gift. 
Yes, you know over the lifetime of employment that can make a huge difference to somebody's retirement, to their uh, quality of life. So it's really important. I have to say I was lucky. I took a random elective when I was at Harvard Business School that was taught by a Harvard Law School professor. And one day he showed us how to negotiate for salaries and how to create a term sheet. And that stood me in good stead throughout my career from the very first job that I went in to get, even just coming fresh out of business school, I brought my term sheet in to negotiate. And I remember how intimidated the person I was negotiating against, he kept saying, what's that? What's on that sheet? And, you know, I I said, you know, these are my terms. And I also said, I want to make sure I'm making the most of anyone in my class that's coming in at the same time. And I know that stuck with him. And he said, you will. And so, you know, I think there are a lot of tools that women can use um, to help them negotiate. And I think often women feel like it's rude or they may not be liked if they're asking for more money, um, but there are ways to do it in a very nice way to make sure that you're getting fairly paid. A couple of women friends that are very senior executives in the technology field, you know, senior vice president level were looking at new jobs and they happened to call me within weeks of each other. They called to see if I could help them with some thoughts about jobs they were looking at. And I realized as I was talking to them that they really, no matter, they were very smart senior women who'd been in the business world for a long time. And I was stunned how little they understood about negotiating their offers. And so I helped coach them through that. And they ended up getting literally hundreds of thousands of dollars more in each case. And I thought if these women who are at the top of their game, highly sought after, don't know how to negotiate, think about the rest of the population. So I actually put together a course and I've been teaching it um, at various, um, you know, women's uh, conferences and training programs to help women both navigate their careers and also negotiate for more money. Well, let's do a crash version of that course. When you say, and this may not be where you start, but when you say term sheet, can you be specific about what that is? Sure. So the first thing you want to do is just write out everything that has to do with your job from the title, what base salary are you making now and what would you expect in the future? And don't forget, you may be getting an increase in a few months at your current job. If you're looking at a job outside the organization, it may be a year and a half before you get another increase. You need to factor that in. Um, You look at the bonus. Um, You know, what's your bonus percentage in your current job? What would you require if you're leaving your company for a new offer? Are you maybe leaving your bonus on the table? The new company needs to buy that out. You know, you look at, do you have equity and how much is that worth? And you have to calculate that out so that they will buy that out when you go to a new job. You look at maybe you have, you know, your lucky person that still might have a pension plan or, you know, uh, an ESOP where you get a good discount that the other company may not offer. You also want to look at, you know, are there things like you've earned four weeks of vacation where you currently are. Don't forget to ask about that when you go to your new job or the 401k match. You know, all those different things add up. You should think about severance. You know, um, if something happens in your new job, make sure you get a guarantee of what you'll be paid if it doesn't work out. So no wonder you're writing all this down because this is this is basically what you're saying is create an exhaustive list of all of your 
your salaries, current and upcoming, your benefits, current and upcoming, any promises that have been made to you, as as well as a plan for, okay, if I take this leap and leave this company where I've been for five years to go to this new company and it doesn't work, some sort of a safety net. Right. And don't forget, you may be at a company, um, there are certain companies that I don't know, make appliances and they give you an allocation for that, right? You may get certain perks because you're working at a particular company that has a product that you may get, you know, for free. Those things add up. What happens when you write them all down, you realize the value of um, the current situation you're in and you have to make sure that you're matching that. You don't want to leave anything on the table. And um, there are things like a sign-on bonus that you can ask for. Say you're going to a job and there's no relocation required because you're in the same city as the new job. You can say, wow, you saved a lot on relocation. You know, how about a sign-on bonus to make up for that? Or I was expecting a sign-on bonus, you know, in this new role. So there are definitely different elements you'd be thinking of when you're negotiating for this new offer. How industry-specific is this? I mean, I'm I'm thinking about... I work in journalism. There are a lot of people who who maybe work in industries that are are not as booming, for example, as as technology is, or or where talent maybe is even is is easier to come by than in in certain other industries. I could imagine asking for a sign on bonus and somebody laughing at me. Um, well, even if they laugh at you, you you know, I think that women are worried about that. You can just say, so um, are you considering a sign-on bonus for this role? If you put it in the form of a question, then the person, they'll think twice about it. There are differences um, between industries, but actually not that much. The basic things of, you know, your title, your base salary, bonus, sign-on bonuses are used broadly across many industries. Equity, those are pretty similar. Retirement treatment, you know, be it a 401k or, um, you know, a pension plan. So I think there's a lot of consistency. And one of the things I do say when you're looking at um, any negotiations is do your homework. Go out and find out what's prevalent in that industry. I mean, we have the benefit of the Internet now, so there's no tra- there's no lack of transparency about information. You know, you can also talk to friends that are in that industry. Talk to headhunters, you know, that you may know and ask them what they would expect if there's not one involved in your negotiation as you're looking at a new role. So make sure you understand what the key elements are and what there is to ask for, because if you don't ask, you don't get. And so it's always good to ask. You can also do things if you're starting a new job. As I mentioned, you may have missed their annual cycle. You may say, could I get a review, an off-cycle review in six months? You know, I'll come in at this level, but I'd like to see, you know, if I can get a salary increase in six months. So there are different things that you can ask for that people would consider as they're looking at a new role. One of the things that I've heard you say is that some women make a mistake of negotiating against themselves. What does that mean? So... You don't want to go in and people will say, so what do you want to make in this role? Do not be the first one to offer up what the salary requirements would be. It's been a lot of legislation across the country that actually you're not allowed to ask people's previous salary anymore because they found that was one reason why women were not um, closing the pay equity gap is because 
they tended to make less. And then when they moved to a new role or got promoted even where they were, they would also not get as much of an increase or a new salary that was commensurate with other people in the company. So now that's, and you should check your local laws, that's not legal to ask. And so the companies have to come forward first and say, this is what we pay for this role. And sometimes you'll find it'll be a big increase without you even having to ask. It's my understanding that 17 states have banned that question. What do you do if you're in a state that hasn't banned it? Well, first of all, many companies just for ease when they operate in multiple states have now just made the change regardless of the state um, that you just don't ask in general. Um, So even if you're in a state where it's still legal, what I always would do is just laugh and say, oh, no, you're not asking that question anymore. I didn't think anyone did that. It's not legal in most states. And that may put people back on their heels. And then you just repeat again, so what are you offering for this role? If you feel like you're boxed into a corner, the other thing you can do is say, because you don't have to make what you were making before or slightly more, what you can say is, well, you know, I'm really not interested in moving from my current role for less than X percentage, you know, 25%. And it may sound a lot or whatever salary is you're interested in, you can push it to that level. And if they say, wow, that's way too much, I wasn't, you know, anticipating paying that, um, you can say, oh, well, you know, I'm sorry to hear that. What was your expectation. And so then once again, you can get them to come forward with a number. And what if that number is low? What if they come forward with a number and it's, you think you're being lowballed or it's just lower than you are willing to move for? I wouldn't take the role because if you're starting off that way, um, you're going to be disappointed. And so just remember too, when people are making you offers, they're leaving room for negotiation. You know, the first offer is not, in their minds, usually the last offer. So don't just say, yes, that's great, I'll take it. You want to step back and consider it, and then you should negotiate at that point. And there are other ways. So maybe the person says, I don't have enough in my budget. Well, that's when you pull in the sign-on, which is a one-time deal. Or you say, I want to review in six months because this is what I expect to make. Or you say, well, what's the equity package? Maybe they'll give you more equity um, if the base is low. So there's you, you use all those different compensation tools to try and identify where you can get more money out of the offer in general to get to the level you expected. But if you feel someone's lowballing you and it doesn't seem fair, I'm not sure that's a company you want to go work for anyway. I, I want to come back and I want to talk about continuing to negotiate once you've already gotten the job. But before we do that, let me remind everybody, Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. You don't have to know all the answers when it comes to your financial future. But an important question to ask yourself is, what do you want from your money? What are your financial goals? No matter where we're meeting you on your financial journey, Fidelity is here to help you reach those goals faster. It all starts with a financial checkup and an understanding of what you own and what you owe. From there, we'll work with you to evaluate your investment options and ways to grow your savings. Discuss your goals, see where you stand, and get help taking the next steps at fidelity.com slash demand more. We are talking with Tracy Keough, who runs Human Resources at HP. And I have heard you say before, Tracy, that women need to negotiate from day one. What does that mean? So when you are looking at a new offer, potentially outside, I never discuss compensation in the beginning because you really don't 
want to hire someone who's only interested in the money. And if they're from the initial interview talking about money, then you're wondering, well, do they really care about the content of this job? What you want to do is wow them in terms of the interviews, and then they're going to make you the offer. But what you can do is lay the groundwork from day one. So for example, I was looking at a role at uh, a company, and I knew the senior leadership, which was all male, was fairly traditional. I let them know that my husband was going to a startup and was making zero money and that I was the sole breadwinner. And so I knew that was in their mind. I wasn't, you know, if I hadn't said that, I think they would have considered me sort of the secondary income in the household. Mm -hmm. But by me just letting them know I was the sole breadwinner, that actually changed the initial offer I even got. And I know that was the case because the CEO mentioned it to me, you know, months later after I had started the job. And so there are things you can say, you know, about, wow, the cost of living is very high in this city, or, you know, uh, it's going, you know, I have to to do the travel for this role is going to require, you know, additional hours from my nanny. So there are things you can talk about that relate to the money you might need to take a, a role and make a change that you can lay the groundwork. So by the time you get to the offer, they're already realizing you need to make X, Y, and Z for this offer to um, at least have any impact and be attractive to you. So we've got our term sheet. We've got all of these things laid out. We've laid the groundwork. We've sort of established a case that we need to be paid well. We need to be paid fairly. We need to be paid significantly more than we're being paid today. What else needs to happen to close the deal? So I think if you're at a very senior part of uh, of the organization, like an SVP or even a VP and above, I always make sure to have an employment lawyer look over any agreement that I sign. And at the very highest levels of an organization, SVP or EVP, that that employment lawyer can actually help negotiate your offer. Um, So, you know, make sure you're protecting yourself. You know, it should be clear about who you're reporting to and, um, you know, the terms of the deal. If there's, you know, how they think about terminations for cause, understanding what severance might be. So there are lots of things you can put in that offer letter and make sure that somebody reviews it and get everything in writing because you may have a great agreement with someone and then you start working at your new place and that boss leaves and there's a whole another leadership team that comes in who may or may not agree to what you may have had as a side agreement, not in writing. So I always say get everything in writing. Well, I would think that would be true, too, for somebody who's not particularly senior. I mean, we know in our listenership, we've got a lot of baby boomers and Gen Xers, but we've got a substantial number of millennials as well. And they may not have quite the leverage of these senior women that we're talking about. Yeah, so I think even when you're starting out, you know, making sure that you review anything you sign. Um, If you want to use an employment lawyer, um, you can have somebody review your offer letter or usually, you know, a family friend, things like that. That makes a, a big difference. And I think people at any level should negotiate. 
And we've talked a lot about people who are moving to senior roles or different roles in different companies, but there are points in your own company if you want to stay, and I'm a big advocate for people staying in their companies over time. I think you can build a great career as long as you're learning and growing there, and it's very beneficial from a benefit standpoint. One thing I worry about, especially for women, is if they're looking at what are the retirement benefits that you get. You know, most companies, you have to work X number of years and be at a certain age, but then you'll get access to retiree health care. That's a great benefit. So staying in some of those companies for a long time makes a difference. And you can make money getting promoted. You know, the annual compensation cycles now is not usually the best time to get a lot of money because budgets are tight. Managers can't uh, really go beyond the certain pool they have. But a good time to get some additional money is potentially at an off-cycle time. So say you're up for a promotion, you get promoted, make sure you negotiate that promotion. You know, someone may give you an amount and you may say, wow, I'm pretty disappointed. I thought I'd get a 10% raise for this. Is it possible to do that? Or I was expecting more equity or even access to equity at this point. So you can sometimes help suggest to your boss ways that they might go back, maybe a one-time kind of um, spot bonus if they can't you know, increase your salary right at that promotion time. But those promotion times are very important to get more money. And even if it's a lateral move, always ask for more money and see if it's possible if there's an opportunity for that. Sometimes it's helpful to have other people in your company helping you along, not necessarily mentors, but sponsors, people who are willing to advocate for you. How do you find those people? So one of the big pieces of advice that I give is to find a sponsor. And a sponsor is not a mentor. You need those as well. But it goes beyond someone who will just be a sounding board and a coach, which is much more what a mentor does. A sponsor is someone who will support you in the organization. When opportunities come up and they're in the room, they bring up your name for new things. And so, you know, for example, at HP, we have a sponsorship program that we call Catalyst, for women and underrepresented minorities. And we've 31% of the people that have been in that program have been promoted or into new jobs. So we create one within our organization. If there isn't one at your company, go to HR and find out if there is. You can create your own sponsors. Identify someone who's powerful, who's you know in a, a good position. You know that they're in the room when promotion decisions happen. And talk to them and find out Um, if they will support you and you can create your own sponsorship relationship, you know, find out the things you need to do to help make that person feel like they can sponsor you and be your advocate when you need one. One of the things I always tell women is don't be afraid to be ambitious. Tell people you want to be the CEO or the head of a division or whatever it is, and they'll think about you in a different way and look at you in a way they might give you opportunities they hadn't thought of. And so if people know that you have that ambition, it really um, will help you in your career in the organization. Because sometimes people make assumptions. They think, oh, that person, you know, they have a lot of kids. They don't want to travel. They won't be up for this role. But if you tell them that you are, they will consider you. As we wrap this up, can we just talk a little bit about talking about salary overall? I mean, many of us just don't like it. 
we feel, as you said earlier, we feel like it's rude. We feel like it's impolite. We feel like it shouldn't be part of our everyday conversation. Where do you come down on this? So I think the good news is people are talking about salary a lot more. There's a wonderful video on YouTube of a young girl uh, Caitlin Boston is her name, where she decided she wasn't making enough money. And she actually went around and talked to co-workers and other people about their salaries and realized she was being underpaid. And she kept using this approach where she'd say, because people didn't want to talk about salaries. So she would say, hey, do you make above this amount or below? So it was kind of, you know, uh, vague and broad, but people would answer that question. She, feel like, she realized people around her were making much more. She asked for more money and so on. And she ultimately was able to pay off her student loans early and dramatically increase her compensation over years by having those conversations. So there are ways you can do it that you can keep it vague enough that helps you directionally figure out um, where you should be going from a salary perspective. And that will give you the confidence to go ahead and ask for more money. Tracy Keogh, great conversation. Thank you so much for opening our eyes to all the different things that we should be paying attention to as we're going in to ask for more money. Great. Thank you, Jean. Good luck to everybody. Oh, to you too. And we will be right back with Catherine and your mailbag. Catherine Tuggle has joined me in the studio I got to say, I was prepared for this conversation with Tracy Keogh because I've heard her talk about a term sheet before and how you really should have all of these different things laid out. But when she started listing them, my head started to swim. Like, there is a lot. There's a lot. It's a big term sheet. I mean, what I sort of took away from it was... Think about all the things that you value in your job, whether they are financial today in terms of salary, financial in that they're benefits, right, vacation and um, insurance and 401k and other things. But also think about what could be coming your way in six months. And I thought that that point about severance, and granted, you probably do have to be senior for them to consider that, was really interesting. Definitely. I think most people think of just cashing out their vacation when they leave a job. Mm -hmm. I've heard my friends say that. My severance will be my unused vacation that I get a check at the end of my job. Or you think about severance if you're laid off. But what she said was, if you're being recruited for a job, then there is always this chance that the job won't work out and that six months from now you're going to be in a position that you never expected to be in and you should be planning for that too. It's kind of like not just negotiating for the terms of your marriage but negotiating your prenup at the same time. Exactly. That's a really good way to put it. And that definitely speaks to your instinct to always recommend to people to write down everything in your budget, track your spending, right? Like having those lists in front of you where you can visualize step-by-step what you want, what you need, what you're spending. It's so important. And here's something I learned on the Today Show. Having a piece of paper on your lap is okay. 
right? I mean, for years, when I was going to do a segment, I would make sure that every single thing I had memorized and that I didn't need any visual aids. And then I don't even remember what the segment was, but there came a time where there were so many numbers that I didn't want to get wrong that I just decided I'm taking this sheet of notes with me onto the set. I'm going to put it in my lap just like the anchors do. And if I need to refer to it so that I don't get something wrong or so that I don't miss something, I'm going to refer to it. Nobody blinked. You know, it's okay to take your notes when you're going to the doctor or when you're going into a salary negotiation or when you're going to a meeting with a lawyer or a financial advisor. You can't remember everything. Right. Did you notice that it made you more confident just knowing that you had it? Yeah. I mean, you'll notice when I give a talk, I'm one of those people. I talk from a podium. I always have notes with me. And I have done those kind of talks like a TED Talk where you're just wandering the stage. I kind of hate it. Like, I don't use my notes all that often, but I really am more confident when I know I have them there. I kind of always assumed those TED Talks had teleprompters. Oh, God, do they? Maybe they do. I don't know. They probably do, and I just don't know it. And I kind of think these people who give these 20-minute talks just have them memorized. I don't know. We're going to find out. We are. If anybody out there has done a TED Talk, let us know if it's had a teleprompter. It's probably one of those things that we could look up. Definitely. Yeah. All right. What do we have? Our first note today is from Sharon. She writes, Hi, Jean. I read and enjoy your emails consistently. Recently, in This Week in Your Wallet, you made a casual reference to people earning 6.5% returns on their money over time. Is this a reasonable average? Where can anyone get 6.5% returns anymore? Thanks. I get this question a lot, and so I'm really happy that we're taking it here. But before I do that, for those people who don't know, at Her Money, we publish two free newsletters every week. One is This Week in Your Wallet. It comes out on Tuesdays, and it's our look at the important money news of the week and what it means to you. The second is the Her Money newsletter. It comes out on Fridays, and it is a look at the things that we've published through the week that we think that you should know about. Um, again, they're free. If you're not signed up, go to hermoney.com slash sign up and just get on the list for both. I've, I've been doing this week in your wallet for well over a decade, and it, people do find it helpful. Um, that reference to 6.5 return on your money over time is, I think, really conservative, actually. And when I use numbers like this, I try to be conservative because I don't want people feeling like what I'm suggesting is not possible. If you look at the returns on the Dow Jones Industrial Average or the S&P 500 over several decades, you're going to see that returns are consistently 8 to 10 percent. And depending on which of the indexes you're looking at. And so the way to get these returns over time is not by putting your money into fixed income where, no, you cannot get 6.5% anymore. You can't do that by putting your money into CDs like my grandfather used to do and get 18%. You have to invest your money in a diversified portfolio that includes a good amount of stocks, and then those returns are very, very reasonable. Our next letter is from Katie. She writes, I have an American Express card that I opened four or five years ago. They periodically increase my credit line. I wonder how much I should let them do this or if I should ask them to stop. The increase helps my score at the moment because it improves my utilization ratio. 
but I don't want so much available credit that it negatively affects getting other loans in the future. Is there anything I need to keep in mind here or a way I can be more proactive? So, Katie, the number to keep in mind in terms of keeping your credit utilization in a good place is that for the benefit of your credit score, you never want to be using more than 10 to 30 percent of the credit that you have available to you on each card specifically and all your cards in general. If the fact that they are taking your credit limit up means that you are consistently staying within that ratio, then that is a fine thing. And it should not negatively impact you when you're going out to apply for other loans. Before you apply for any big loan, like a mortgage or like a car loan, six months to a year ahead of the fact, check your credit score and make sure that you're not getting dinged for having too many open lines of credit. If you do, you can immediately make the move to bring it down. But otherwise, I think allowing them to take your credit line up bit by bit, as long as you're not using that excess capacity, is not a really bad thing to do. In fact, it may help you when it comes to getting a better rate on that mortgage or that car loan down the line. Our last letter is from Cherry, who writes, How do you handle disparity in financial fluency with your spouse or partner? My husband and I are just not on the same page when it comes to finances. He stays at home and I work. For much of our life together, we've been in survival mode due to special needs kids and lots of medical expenses. We were debt-free once, but relapsed and can't seem to gain traction. What can I do to help us get on the same page and headed toward a common goal financially? Cherry, I I totally understand where you're coming from. I think many of us are married to people who don't necessarily share the same amount of interest in personal finances. And it sounds like you're the one who's interested. You're the one who's managing things. And your husband isn't really that interested in digging in. The last line of your letter, though, I think holds the answer because you asked, what can I do to get us headed toward a common goal financially? Drop the word financially and think about what you can do to get yourselves headed toward a common goal. Then back the numbers into it. It's much more important to think about what you want out of your life. Do you want to pay off a mortgage? If it's that you want to be debt-free, why do you want to be debt-free? What is that going to provide for you? Does that mean um, fewer sleepless nights? Does it mean that you have to work fewer hours and you can be home to take off some of the tasks on his list revolving the kids? Does it mean that he could step out and pursue some sort of a side hustle or hobby that interests him. Think about what it is that you want out of life and then what you need to do financially in order to get to that place. And if you're still having trouble, I think a one-off meeting with either a compassionate therapist or a compassionate financial advisor might help you get there. In your case, because you need to focus on those common goals before you focus on the common financial goals, I actually think the therapist might be as good as the financial advisor, although you may eventually want some specific financial help. And I hope that that's helpful. 
Are there group therapy sessions for couples and finances? You know, I haven't heard of group therapy sessions, but I do know Dave Ramsey does this course called Financial Peace, and he delivers it at many, many churches around the country. And I know a lot of couples who have gone through Financial Peace University um, or just the Financial Peace course at their church, and it does help them line up on their goals. So if there's a church in your area and you're inclined to check out Dave's course, I think that might be a good thing for you because it is specifically debt-focused. Right. And so many couples are dealing with the same things. Exactly. Exactly. And there's a lot of satisfaction that can be gained by realizing you're not alone. So I would check that out too. Great suggestion. Catherine, thank you so much. Thank you. If you're interested in sending us a letter, what do they do? Email mailbag at hermoney.com. Awesome. In today's Thrive, if you work in an open floor plan office, where do you go for moments of solace, for private calls, or just for a breather? Because even though we may dearly love our colleagues, we don't necessarily want to be face-to-face with them for 40 hours a week. And that is exactly what open offices have forced us to do. And in turn, we are increasingly escaping to the only place left we have to find a moment of zen. And that is, drumroll please, the bathroom. Catherine, I have done this. I have actually done this. So we, (laughs) no, it's true. We work, as many people will know, we work in a WeWork. It is an open plan office. We do have phone booths on the floor where you are supposed to be able to go to take a private call. But those phone booths are all too often filled. And I've gone into those single-use bathrooms to take phone calls. So I am guilty because the all-glass conference rooms, they don't work. The absence of having our own offices, sometimes that bathroom is the only option for finding privacy. You have to watch the automatic flush, though. You do. You do have to watch the automatic flush. Sometimes the, uh, yeah, sometimes the automatic water on the sink, too, is another telltale sign that you are, well, in, in the john. So if you felt awkward or weird about your need to escape, no need. Psychologists say it is completely normal. And there is some good news on the horizon for all of us craving a little more solitude during our nine to five. More companies are taking steps to install the gender neutral restrooms like the ones that I was talking about. They are single stall. They are completely enclosed. They have floor to ceiling doors. And yes, as Catherine said, the only thing that you have to be careful of is that automatic flush. Try to hide in a corner. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks so much to Tracy Keough for the great conversation around career and negotiation. It was very empowering. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review because we like hearing what you think. We want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe, and our show comes to you through PRX. Tune in next week. We'll be back with Allison Gilbert, author of Past and Present, Keeping Memories of Loved Ones Alive. We'll be diving into love, loss, and moving on. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk soon.